Good evening, gentlemen. I have great pleasure tonight in introducing Mr. Hugh Burrows. Those of you who don't know him will have heard of him, no doubt, because he was director of the, he's director of the Hawker Siddeley Group. Some ten years ago, he was president of the SBAC. And I think the only other thing I might mention is although he started life at the RAE, he helped to found the uh, Gloucester Aircraft Company Limited as long ago as 1917. So I don't think we could have anybody better to tell us or to give us a history of the Gloucester Company. So without more ado, I'll ask Mr. Burroughs to give us his short history of the Gloucester Company. Mr. Burroughs. Well, gentlemen, most of the um, Gloucester story has already been told, and told very well in good professional style by Mr. H.F. King in the edition of Flight, dated the 27th of May, 1955. And the same edition contains a very generous contribution by Air Commodore Alan Wheeler, <coughs> which most vividly portrays a pilot's point of view on the Greaves and the Gamecocks and later on the Gladiators and the Meteors. Well, when I was invited to give my version of the Glasser story, I reread H.F. King's article and frankly I felt somewhat uncertain as to whether I could add enough to be of sufficient interest to the members of the society. I therefore wrote to Mr. King asking his advice, and I sent him a couple of paragraphs of the sort of thing that I might include. His answer was that all he had done was to provide a skeleton, and he thought I might be able to put a little flesh on it. In point of fact, of course, King had already clothed the skeleton pretty well. Now what I'm going to try and do in the next three quarters of an hour or so is to describe some of the background and how the element of timing comes into this story. Tides of the affairs of men, you know, comes into these things. Since the Gloucester Aircraft Company was one of the offspring of the old aircraft manufacturing company, I think it would be of interest to you, and probably many others, when, if it ever goes into print, because this company has been dead so long, people have forgotten all, a lot about it, if I began with some notes about the Aircraft Manufacturing Company. You remember that the names of the uh, small band of British aircraft pioneers of the 1909-1910 period who founded their own firms are well known and prominent among them, of course, are people like Sopwith, Handley Page, Short Brothers, A.V. Rowe, Blackburn, Graham White, and then two others, Sir George White and Holt, George Holt Thomas. The, all the first named, of course, were pilots or designers in their own right. But neither Mr. George White nor Mr. Holt Thomas were, <coughs> were anything uh, in the way of that, neither pilots nor uh, designers, but they were tremendously inter interested in, air in aircraft. Now, Holt Thomas was a frequent visitor to France in the flying, to the flying meetings, and in particular, the flying meeting in, at 1909 at Rams in France. He was not a professional journalist, 
but he went, as he told me, partly to get pictures and copies for the Daily Graphic, a picture paper founded by his father. He also persuaded Colonel Mervyn O'Gorman, the first superintendent of the RAE, to go with him and see for himself what heavier-than-air flying machines could do. O'Gorman, needless to say, didn't want much persuasion, but it helped him in his argument with Lord Haldane, who was then the, uh, the sort of high priest at the, in the government, uh, helped him with his arguments to that, that, that the Air, Royal Aircraft Establishment, or as it then called the Balloon Factory, should be allowed to get into design of aircraft. At that time, the Balloon Factory was concentrating on airships. Later on, O'Gorman told me that his visit to Rams with Holden was undoubtedly strengthened the case he had already presented to Lord Haldane. As a result of Hull Thomas's frequent visits to France, he became very friendly with the Farman brothers, particularly with Morris Farman, as a very valuable contact, since it led to the Farmans giving Hull Thomas a license to make and sell their aircraft in the United Kingdom. It's relevant here to recall that at that time, you know, the French were well ahead of us, particularly on aircraft engine development. And Holt Thomas was therefore in a position to offer the British government complete farming aircraft, and from 1911 onwards, he made the most of his opportunities, especially in the last three months of each financial year. Uh, to those of you that don't uh, have much to do with government, you know, the more you can cram into the, more you can cram into the last three months of every financial year, the better the government like it, or some of them do. Well, with the uh, farm and gnome licenses in his possession, and an increasing order book in, uh, in, in sight, he bought a works at the Hyde Hendon, and formed the aircraft manufacturing company, and enlisted a working shareholder in Clement Greswell, who is still, still very much alive and living in Scotland. Greswell had been a member of the Graham White team, which specialized on exhibition flying at Hendon and elsewhere. When he joined Hull Thomas, he became quite an expert at organizing the deliveries of farmers from Hendon to Farnborough in, the, uh, in these last three months of each year, and on many occasion, occasions delivered three aircraft in one day. The procedure was simple. Greswell waited at Farnborough and raced the, for the first delivery and then raced the pilot back to Hendon in, Hisp in his Hispano Suiza. He repeated this after the second and third deliveries, and having cleared all the paperwork, he retired to Hendon and mustered his forces for the next day. The problem in those days was not traffic, but tires. I came into the picture in 1913 whilst I was still at the RAE at Farnborough. My wife and I translated most of the farm and a known instructional and spare part lists that brought me into constant contact with Holt Thomas. That resulted eventually in my appointment as manager of the Aircraft Manufacturing Company in March 1914, a few months before de Havilland joined him as chief designer. The advent of de Havilland is a good example of the timing element to which I hinted earlier. Old Thomas, of course, well aware that he must have a designer because the farmers were clearly becoming obsolescent designs. De Havilland had been persuaded, you probably all know, against all his inclinations, 
to join the newly formed AID. And I was in a position to help the negotiations, which led to him joining forces with the aircraft manufacturing company. And knowing his paramount desire to maintain on design work, not on inspection work, very little persuasion was needed. After the outbreak of the 1914-18 war, the company grew very rapidly. At the outset, we concentrated on Morris Farm and Longhorn and Shorthorn types, and the Henry Farman, partly from rudimentary drawings, but mostly for actual samples, which were held, hung up all around the, the uh, there's a big room devoted to it. Anybody in any doubt, they came and had a look at the sample. The drawings weren't much good. The AID, AID fortunately, were very cooperative. With the de Havilland types rapidly coming off the drawing board, something, of course, had to be done to expand our production resources. It's worth just intervening here to say that it's worth recalling that the uh, aircraft manufacturing company covered a considerably wider field than these airframes. It produced many hundreds of monosuperpneum engines and their own engines and new works built at Walthamstow and started the tough Pierce works on Long Island in the States on the same work. It built many small airships and kite balloons at, Martin, at Merton, Merton in Surrey. It designed and built under the supervision of Commander Port a number of flying boats at Kingston, Hendon and Hyde on Southampton Water, and its contribution to the war effort, of course, was pretty massive. However, to return to the aircraft production. After consulting our previous, well, the, the, as you know, all the aircraft in those days were wood, wooden strings, we used to call it. And the obvious place to go if you want some advice as to where to get a good subcontractor was to go to the timber suppliers, which we did, Mallinson's of Hackney Road. As a result of that, we got into touch with Martins of Cheltenham for the first time. This would be about um, the spring of 1915. We gave Martins a succession of contracts, not only for the Morris, for the Farman aircraft, but for the de Havilland types. And with their skilled craftsmen and well-equipped works, they proved a most reliable source of supply during the whole of the war. <clears throat> In the spring of 1917, however, Mr. A. W. Martin, then the managing director, came to me and proposed that we should form a company in which he and his colleagues would have a 50% holding and the aircraft manufacturing company would hold the other half. He proposed that this company should take over our contracts and take over Martin's works on lease. A very good business arrangement, needless to say. We agreed. And this was, be, this was the real beginning of the Gloucestershire Aircraft Company, later to become so well known as the Gloucester Aircraft Company. The founding directors were Holt Thomas, J.W. Martin, David Long, and Guy Peck, and myself. During the war, the company expanded considerably and employed the manufacturing resources of all the firms in the uh, Gloucester and the Stroud districts. And it, at the end, towards the end of the war, it produced quite a considerable number of Bristol fighters and uh, Newport Nighthawks. <coughs> So altogether, it was a sizable organization at the end of the war. Now, we go back for a moment to the aircraft manufacturing companies. In 1919, 
they faced a very difficult problem. How to employ the resources of the empire built up during the war with the finances greatly depleted by the excess profits tax. Unfortunately, it also saw the sapping of Holt Thomas's stamina, which had already been weakened by a recurring, recurring throat complaint. He eventually sold out in 1920 to the BSA Daimler Group, then administered by Percy Martin, you remember the protagonist of the Silent Night or the Sleeve Valve Engine, and Algernon Berryman, previously a leading contributor to flight. Between them, after what seemed a very brief survey, a decision was taken to close the company down. From the ashes, so to speak, arose the de Havilland Aircraft Company, and the Gloucestershire Aircraft Company also bought itself free from the liquidator. I had left the aircraft manufacturing company a year before, but when the GAC became disassociated from the aircraft manufacturing company, I was free to join the latter. From a conversation which I had with Harold Thomas after I left, I gathered that the government had no constructive policy about the aircraft industry at all, and this factor probably contributed to the BSA Daimler decision to close down the old aircraft manufacturing company. Moreover, the handing over of an immense quantity of aircraft and engines to the aircraft disposal company was not exactly encouraging to the manufacturing industry. It must be said, however, that the government was preoccupied with a lot of other problems like demobilization. And if you're old enough to remember that time, it was a very serious, very they landed in riots all over the country. And despite many criticisms from interested parties, the aircraft disposal company probably did a better job than any government department could have done in the, in the disposal field. Well, that left us with the, with the GAC finding itself, after the armistice, in a position similar to quite a number of well, all the other aircraft firms. The government's policy was soon made clear to cut out all war expenditure as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible. There were no signs, again, of any, of any policy of maintaining even a, even a nucleus of design or development or manufacturing capacity. The method of cancelling the contract was drastic. Sir William Alexander, successor to Lord Buer at the Air Board, dealt with the aircraft firms all of which were told to stop work and submit their claims in a matter of a few weeks. In due course, the company submitted its claim, and a settlement of the Nighthawk contract was made promptly, and the factory immediately declared to keep it, get it going on other work. As a part of the settlement, the company purchased from the Air Board Nighthawk components, an important fact, this, which were no longer required and for which it had to provide storage. Later, these components became the foundation of many of the types which were produced afterwards, including the early racing machines. The remaining claims for the balance of the contracts affected by the cancellation became the subject of a petition of right, the last refuge of the citizen against the crown, and they were eventually settled together with claims for excess profits tax. Now, the, the directors 
main concern then was how best to utilize the manufacturing resources of the Martin Sunningen works at Cheltenham until such time as new ships and new architectural decoration work could be started and enable Martins to rebuild its pre-war business. Contracts for motor car components were undertaken and a motor scooter was launched without any marked success. By 1921, however, the aircraft scene had changed again. The Master Semple had been appointed as air advisor to the Japanese government, and he wanted no less than 50 complete Night, night Hawk aircraft with the BR-2 rotary engine, suitably modified and reconditioned for the new job, and christened the Sparrowhawk. The total contract amounted to 50 machines, 50, uh, 90 machines, 50 as complete aircraft and 40 as reserves. Evidently, uh, Master simply expected a fair amount of uh, crashes. The GAC fortunately held all these, uh, or sufficient stock of these uh, aircraft at Chilton, which had been housed in the old winter gardens. All 90 machines were delivered in six months. This led to the enlistment of Harry Folland and his able lieutenant, H.E. Preston. A works engineer approved by the AID, uh, works inspector approved by the AID was appointed. The stamp of approval rung from the airboard and the Gloucestershire Aircraft Company was in business, not merely as a wartime production organization, but as a fully fledged contractor recognized as such by the airborne. Despite the Japanese contract, however, this was still an act of faith in the face of the continued apathy of the government. And it wasn't until a year later that new squadrons were authorized, the famous 19, late 1922 program. Meanwhile, the company survived and paid its way with contracts for reconditioning Panthers and a small contract for Nighthawks for the Chanak operation in the Dardanelles and manufacturing that invaluable standby DH-9A wings, the standby for which many firms in this industry were duly grateful, or at any rate they ought to have been. At the same time, 1921, one of the Nighthawks was modified to take a Napier Lion engine and entered for the 1921 aerial derby, which it won at a speed of 163 miles an hour. Geoffrey Dorman recalls how this machine was christened the Bammel. During a conversation between Dorman, Folland, and F.R. Jones of Napiers, Folland recalled a somewhat far-fetched story current at that time in the RFC of Royal Flying Corps about a bear and a camel. The full story is perhaps more suitable for the Air Club bar where it was told than the more austere atmosphere of this learned society. The Bammel idea was promoted uh, to establish the GAC with a reputation for high-speed aircraft and to stake a claim with the Air Ministry in the single-seater fighter field. Subsequently, the same machine modified to eliminate drag won the aerial derby both in 1922 and 1923 each year with a little more power from the engine 
and a little less drag on the airplane. The object was achieved and led to the GAC being on the Air Ministry list for the design of single-seater fighters. But in the meantime, the company went one better by designing, as a private venture, another variant of the Nighthawk, first with the BR-2 engine, later with the Armstrong Sidley Lynx, and finally with the Armstrong Sidley Jaguar. The BR-2 represented almost the last of the rotary ra radials, and the Lynx and the Jaguars were among the first of the fixed-cylinder radials. The last of the three was built to meet the Air Ministry's specification for a day and night fighter, and it emerged as a prototype Grebe, and no less than 132 of these were bought by the British Air Ministry for squadron service. It may have been only slightly faster than its competitors, but its outstanding quality was maneuverability. It had what we used to call in those days, and I think we still, still do, harmonized controls, and it was a great favorite of the squadrons, particularly on that score. So far as the GAC was concerned, the Grebe contract was the first physical evidence of the new policy of the government to provide the new squadrons authorized, authorized late in 1922. Two Greaves, by the way, were launched, a matter of interest, from an airship over Chatham and landed safely. By the time the Greaves were in full production, the Bristol Engine Company had forged ahead with the Jupiter radials. I attended a number of meetings at Chelton where Mr. A. R. Fedden, now Sir Roy Fedden, pushed the case for the Jupiter with his usual forcefulness, and we were induced to modify a Grebe to take the Jupiter engine, and with the extra 100 horsepower, it soon showed that it is a worthwhile development. And 90 of these aircraft, namely the Gamecock, were ordered by the Air Ministry. The wing structure of the Gamecock, however, had to be redesigned, or rather the Grebe structure had to be redesigned for the, for, to provide the uh, extra power and so on for the Gamecock. And we found later it redesigned at some risk because the top wing was increased in span by a margin which proved to be on the high side. The excessive overhang led to flutter and this, together with the spinning problems arising from the short fuselage, led to a period of modification and delays, which unfortunately allowed our competitors to catch up. At that time, the trend, by that time, this would be 1928, the trend towards all-metal construction was growing fast, and the Gamecock had only been partly translated from wood to metal. The replacement aircraft were the Armstrong Whitworth Siskins and later on the Bristol Bulldogs. We made a number of the Siskins under subcontract. The Siskin, despite its perhaps marginal inferiority in speed range, was regarded as a safer aeroplane and moreover there was a tendency to give another firm some support, particularly as it came from the same stable as the Jaguar which had been supplanted by the Bristol Jupiter. Nevertheless, the position was soon changed again by the appearance of the Bristol all-metal bulldog with a more powerful Jupiter, 
which remained in the ascendancy throughout, even throughout the Hart and Fury regime until the gauntlet was adopted. That's over a considerable period. To get the gauntlet adopted was a struggle against the powerful Bristol team. Touch and go for a few weeks. In the meantime, we won, but the Bristol people still got the order for the engine, so justice was done. During the 1920s and the early part of the 1930s, there were 14 airframe firms, and it was exceptional to find any one of them to keep a level, steady level of production in their own types. Whilst the Greaves and Gamecocks, for example, were going strong, the competing firms were subsidized, so to speak, under a mandate from the, from the Air Ministry, by major contracts for components for these aircraft. The three firms that uh, benefited most from this arrangement were Avro, Hawkers, and the Havilands. When the Siskin went into serious production, they were in turn subcontracted. They said we made 70 of them. This process was continued under the mandate of the Air Ministry until the period of the Hawker Hearts and the Furies, and then things began to change somewhat. The Hearts in particular were standardized to cover several fields, such as the light bomber, reconnaissance, fleet air arm, and so on. Whereas up to 1929, the Air Ministry had, had maintained a policy of keeping its 14 firms in the, in the industry, in a more or less healthy condition, under government pressure, a definite attempt was made to limit the number of firms, and I can well remember being called to the Air Ministry by Mr. Le uh, Mr. now Sir Christopher Bull, the then Permanent Secretary, and during the interview, he suggested that the GAC should either get out or amalgamate. Uh, we didn't receive his proposal with any enthusiasm, but it did demonstrate to me how important it was to have a firm stance in what I now call the corridors of power. To go back a few years, and knowing something about the trend of metal construction, I purchased a half share myself in the old Steel Wing Company. I took this step because at the time our own design team was a bit low, lukewarm on the subject. I had known Mooney for some time. He was, the, he was the chief. It was not difficult for me to get some development contracts for the Steel Wing Company, mostly as replacements for the DH-9A wings. And this kept that company going until the GAC was ready to take it over. When the Westland Wapaday General Purpose aircraft came along, it had to be of all metal construction. And the fact that the Wapiti wings were substantially the same as the DH-9A wings, and finally that I knew we could get a contract for the Wapiti wings, the takeover was irresistible and it took place. It was a most fortunate move because it was very material help in keeping the GAC alive during a period which would otherwise have been very depressing to say the least of it. Anyway, the GAC, having acquired the steel wing company, was technically competent now to remain a serious competitor in its own field, the single-seater fighter. And the su subsequent success of the Gaunters and Gladiators demonstrated the wisdom of the move. Again, going back to the 1925-26 period, 
With the object of widening the field for the GAC, I made contact with Dr. Hilshaw and Mr. T. E. Beecham, who were working on their variable pitch air screw, and I secured an exclusive license from them for the GAC. We went through the usual processes of, a process of making a few prototypes of private ventures. One was fitted on a Grieve and another on a Gamecock. In both cases, there were signs that there were, both showed marginal improvements over the fixed propellers, despite the additional weight, but they, they proved, they also proved that the functioning was reliable. At that time, the engine companies were not interested because they thought they could provide the extra power needed for takeoff by stepping up the engine power, admittedly by some increase of weight, but less than that entailed by the installation of the variable pitch gear. Neither were we helped by a farmer. In fact, farmer were against it, which their spokesmen were anyway. In point of fact, we were just a bit premature. Nevertheless, by the dint of much effort, we secured some development contracts for the Jaguar, Jupiter, Lion, and Kestrel engines. Three or three, three for each, as a matter of fact. In course of time, we sold a license to the Japanese, and at the time of the 1929 exhibition at Olympia, we demonstrated the gear to Mr. Tom Hamilton of the Hamilton Air Screws of the United States. Tom Hamilton came to our aerodrome after the uh, show, saw a demonstration, took copious notes, and left promising to come back within two or three days. He failed to do so. And three days later, we found he disappeared back to the States and within a few weeks had patented the United States, in the United States, his two precision air screw. One fine pitch, of course, and one, of course. With the usual backing for the United States government, he developed his gear with, with great rapidity. The next thing we heard was that the Havens had taken a license to build the Hamilton gear in this country. Such is life. All the same, we persisted with the variable pitch gear for two years after we'd been taken over by Hawkers. By that time, both the Bristol and the Rolls-Royce companies had come to the conclusion that the variable pitch gears were a must. And much to my dismay, they persuaded our new masters at Kingston to sell out to a joint company which subsequently became the Rotol Company. Personally, I thought we had a strong case for retaining a third interest for the Armstrong Sidley Motors. And now for a few paragraphs on the Schneider Cup. For the race at Baltimore in 1926, we built at our own expense two uh, seaplanes with Napier Lions, developments of the Bamel Land Racer. We lost, as did supermarines in the same race. Despite the successes of the Mackey, Italian Mackey machine, which won at Baltimore in, in 1926, Fallon still remained a convinced apostle of the biplanes. R.J. Mitchell of Supermarine, because you know, thought otherwise. The Gloucester entries for the 1927 Schneider Cup at Venice were therefore biplanes, and Fallon certainly produced some first-class, low-drag machines, one of which 
flown beautifully by Lieutenant, Flight Lieutenant Kinkhead, might have pulled it off with, a better, with some better luck. All the engines for the 1927 machines were Napier Lions, direct drive, unsupervisable, with direct drives. Um, and, but early in 1927, experiments were showed that propellers of larger diameter, geared down propellers, in fact, large speed were worth somewhere between six and nine miles an hour. And geared shafts were introduced on one engine for the supermarine and one for Gloucester. Within a week of the race, however, the geared shafts were found to be suspect, and stronger shafts were rushed through. Only one got to Venice in time, and it was fitted to Webster's supermarine. Rightly, I felt, because on the little evidence available at the time, the supermarine seemed to be marginally faster than the Gloucester. Unfortunately, the suspect shaft on the Gloucester machine petered out on the fifth lap of the race, and Kinkhead retired just in time to land safely. A crack had developed three quarters of the way around the spline shaft. Over the first four laps, Kinkhead averaged 273.5 miles an hour. Worsley on the second uh, supermarine averaged 272. Just too bad. But Webster was several miles faster. One of the things I remember most about the Venice event was seeing R.J. Mitchell and Ransom of the AID emerge from the hangar <coughs> daybreak four or five days before the race. The supermarines had all kind of trouble with uh, oil cooling. They'd been up all night, fitting flattened oil tubes, oil cooler pipes rather, along the fuselage of Webster's machine, and the other one too. Oil temperatures had been dangerously high. They looked all in, but they kept the S5 in the race. It was typical of Mitchell, and of Ransom. And for that matter, for that matter, he stuck it out despite his, despite his lame leg. The Supermarine Company obviously owed a tremendous lot to Mitchell's skill and determination. My deepest sympathy, of course, was for Kinkhead, a magnificent pilot and a great leader in the making. Incidentally, you may, you may, there was another machine uh, sent over, the Crusader, built by Shorts, and George Carter has something to do with it, and uh, Colonel Bristone, the Bristol Company, and so on. Anyway, it was sent over there, <clears throat> but it was ditched in the lagoon at, Ven at Venice on its trials because of crossed ailerons. It was afterwards located by watching the bubbles coming up from the magnesium crankcase. It's an interesting legend anyway. The story of the 1929 Schneider Cup is soon told. In the first place, the race, the race had become biennial, annual instead of annual, and it was not until late in 1928 that losses were authorized to go ahead with the machine for the race for the following September. The first point that had to be decided as to whether we should build the machine round a development of the Napier Lion with a supercharger to get more power and so on, or a Rolls-Royce engine which, which was to be based on the Rose Buzzard, or later called the R engine. 
Well, we chose the Napier for the simple reason that we thought they had the best chance of giving us the most powerful engine for the least weight. Well, we took insufficient account, obviously, of the ability of the Rolls team under Andrew Elliott and the drive of E. W. Hyde. And we made the wrong decision. The Rolls-Royce people have probably have read all about this, but just interesting to note it in going through. The Rolls people took that R engine from under 900 horsepower to 1800 horsepower in a matter of months. It's true they'd done some uh, single cylinder work beforehand, but they didn't actually really start on that job till the year of the race itself, 1929. It's a magnificent achievement. It's interesting to recall <coughs> that even now, Folland wanted to build another biplane. And it was only because the center block of the Napier interfered too much with the forward view that the monoplane was adopted. Nevertheless, Folland produced a remarkably fine aircraft. Knowing the competition they would, would have to expect from Rolls-Royce, the Napier team over-boosted the Lion so much that it failed to function satisfactorily till after the race had been won, and the, our, our aircraft had to be withdrawn. But curiously enough, two or three days later, when they did get the engine to function, George Stainforth established a short-lived world airspeed record on the last of six, the speed being 336 miles an hour, with a maximum speed on one run of 351. Matter of course, this record is broken in the course of the next day or two by the Supermarine S5, S6 model. During the um, latter part of the curtailed uh, Gamecock production in 1927 and through to 1933, the firm designed and built a considerable number of uh, experimental aircraft apart from the Schneider Cup machines. So there's a rough list as follows. I'll just gallop through them. The last of two is a revised version of the Gamecock 1, the stiffened wings on the longer fuselage, which is fortunately too late. The Gorecock, a single-seater fighter built around the Napier Lion engine, both of the geared and the ungeared types. A gun is a high-altitude high job with three different types of lions and lionesses. The Gorel, a general-purpose type to replace the DH-9A and is in competition with the Wapitek. The Goring, a light-day bomber contemporary with the heart. The Goldfinch, an all-metal fighter with Gamecock developments. The Gambit, a single-seater fighter for deck landing, we sold none here except one, but we sold quite a few to the Japanese who afterwards went into production with it. The air survey type, two or three of those to the air survey company. The net snapper, an all-metal all single-seater for the, for the fleet air arm. And the SS-18, which was the first of the multi-gun types which subsequently was taken came out as the, uh, as the uh, gauntlet. And finally, a troop carrier with four kestrel engines. None of these were successful in getting production orders except the gambit which went into production in Japan. The nat snapper stood very well at Martlesham, 
but was unfortunately crashed, so it put us out. We also made brief excursions in such things as, as new fields as monospars after the Steger design, a monospar wing for the Fokker monoplane, some experimental variable camber wings, and so on. And in the course of this experimental work, we fitted virtually every engine known at the time. Several marks of Jupiter's, or Mercury's, Orion's, Pegasus, Perseus, in fact, the whole firmament, lions and lionesses, and the Kestrel, and the um, uh, one or two from uh, Armstrong Siddeley Motors, which I missed out. It was a long and baffling period with the background knowledge that the RAF was all the time not, never less than 20% short of the squadrons authorized in 1922. And but for the spare parts and a limited amount of assistance from the Ministry in taking over some of the experimental types which I've just read out to you, and above all the substantial orders for those whoppity wings, those all steel whoppity wings, the GAC would have had a very rough time. I've referred earlier to, in these notes to the relation between the parent company, Martins at Cheltenham, and the GAC and to the fact that the primary concern of Martins was to keep its works and skilled personnel in full employment. This policy succeeded, paid off as a current phrase, very well indeed, and the actual manufacturing workers carried out the children's works a very considerable period. After 1928, however, most of the work had been transferred to the Hucklecote works at Gloucester, particularly the all-metal construction. In the, by 1932, however, the GAC was at its lowest ebb and embarked once again on some non-aircraft work with just enough success to absorb the overheads. At one time, we were housing black and white buses, one or two of the hangars. In another one, was let for... Uh, for uh, tennis court, indoor tennis court. Another one was hired by a farmer who wanted to experiment with growing mushrooms. And the fourth one was actually taken over by a farmer for six months to see whether he could rear peas in it. Otherwise, the work went on as usual. The process of developing the multi-gun SS-18, as I call it, into a single-seater fighter to meet the Air Ministry's specification, went ahead. But it was not until the late autumn of 1934 that the resultant aircraft, the Gauntlet, was ordered by the Air Ministry. The position of the company, therefore, in 1934, while still fairly strong technically in the sense that the Nighthawk tradition was not exhausted, and with the acquisition of the Steel Wing Company, could easily have a, a, a further lease of life. There were, however, a number of disturbing factors. For example, discussions had already been going on between the Ministry and certain members of the industry about the reduction of the number of firms um, already for, on a scheme already formulated for the reduction of the numbers of people in the shipping industry, you may recall. Broadly speaking, the proposals uh, envisaged compensation to those firms who would no longer get our ministry support by a levy on the turnover of those 
selected to continue. I still have in my possession a copy of a memorandum on the subject which I drew up for Mr. John Sidley, after Lord Kenworth, the then chairman of the SBAC, whilst I was the deputy chairman. I was also well aware that through the usual grapevine of the trend towards monoplane, monoplanes, which our designers at that time thought to be premature. Furthermore, you may remember there's a very strong peace movement started particularly in Oxford and going all over the country. And whilst Hitler had been appointed Chancellor, the menace didn't seem very imminent, whilst our domestic problems were imminent. In 1934, therefore, when the Hawker people approached us, approached me personally, with a takeover proposal, the directors gave it very serious consideration. At that time, Hawker's production requirements were very substantial, right in the middle, as you remember, of the Hart and Fury program. They were very substantial, and there was very good reason to believe that they could provide a prolonged period of full employment for the, all the GAC personnel. The Hawker Hart, in particular, made a great impact on the aircraft industry. Starting as a light day bomber, it could it, 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 to succeed the veteran DH-9A, first with the Falcon, later with the Kestrel engine, so successful in the short time it, it, it appeared in a number of roles. It was, moreover, which is perhaps a little more serious, a very, very good low production cost job. The Hart and its numerous derivatives were subcontracted over a number of firms and hawkers were naturally interested in expanding their own production facilities. A month later, the directors accepted the hawker proposal, which in those days in which we then lived was not ungenerous. I continued on the board, and Frank McKenna was appointed first as production manager and later as general manager. After the takeover, it was a surprise to me to learn how far the monoplane plane trend had gone. I knew it had gone on anywhere, I didn't know how far it had gone. Sidney Cam and John Buchanan, now Sir John, of the Air Ministry, had almost come to terms after a prolonged period. We all know something about what we used to call elapsed time. Whilst preferring some, pre preparing some notes to the story, I found myself at a loss to explain why, after two decades of biplanes, we were jolted, as it seemed to me, into monoplane development in 1932-34. It had been obvious to some of the British designers that the rapid increase of engine power could give a much more substantial increase of speed if applied to monoplanes rather than biplanes. It's the obvious drag question. Was the foreign competition the spur. In the 1920s, British aircraft were designed for duty overseas as well as this country, and therefore they had to take off and land on grass, sand, scrub, or in fact any bad or conditions. Hence the Air Ministry limitation which held good for a long, long time of 55 miles an hour. 
concrete runways that permit higher takeoff and landing speeds and improved undercarriages, thanks to the pioneer work of George Doughty, encouraged the trend. But which came first? Foreign competition or the instinctive urge towards higher performance? I asked Sidney Camp, and he said it was the latter without any doubt whatever. Once the monoplane got going, however, its progress, particularly under the stress of war, was remarkable. For example, the Hurricane Mark I in 1937 started with an all-up weight of 6,600 pounds and a wing loading of 25 pounds a square foot and a takeoff run of 260 yards. Five years later, with more power, of course, the Mark IV tropical version, still with the same wing area, the all-up weight had gone to 8,462 pounds, nearly 2,000 pounds more, you see. The wing loading only to 32.8 pounds a square foot, and the engine power, as I said, had gone up as well. The early 1930s was a period of somewhat confused development in the interceptor field. That's, Hurricane was designed, of course, as an interceptor. The Air Ministry wanted a replacement of Hawker Fury, which had been so successful with the Rolls-Royce Kestrel engine. The new specification, F-730, which envisaged another biplane type, emerged, but it didn't meet the bill. So Sidney Cam's records describe a number of conversations, discussions with Major Buchanan's ministry on this subject, and from these emerged the aeroplane concept. Tentative at first in 1932, but consolidated into a specific pro proposal by CAM in 1933. Before it got past the project stage, however, Rolls-Royce announced the more powerful Goshawk, and later, not much later, the beginnings of the Merlin. The F-730 was dropped, and the new specification, the F-3634, was prepared, and in February 1935, the first high-speed monoplane got its official blessing, an order for one machine. This was the Hurricane. It went into production in 1936, and delivery started in 1937. In due course, the last works alone produced 2,750 of them, many of which took part in the Battle of Britain, of course. In point of fact, as you know, there were many more hurricanes in the Battle of Britain than any other time. I ought to add that the available PHR screws and the retractable undercarriages made most valuable contributions to the power available for takeoff and increased top speed, thanks to the Gloucester Hill Shore, the Rotol, and George Doughty, respectively. It's well known that the, the uh, Britain was dangerously short of aircraft at the beginning of the war particularly in the interceptor type. A sad commentary on the famous speech by Mr. Stanley Baldwin in the House of Commons in 1934, when he made the very specific statement that we were well ahead of the Germans and that steps had been taken to ensure that we should keep well ahead. Very soon after the GAC was taken over by Hawkers, substantial extensions to the works at Hucklecote were made. The success of the gauntlet showed that more factory resources were essential to enable the GAC to cope with the overflow from Kingston as well as the local product. The workshops were built 
and during 1934-38 several Hawker types were produced. Henleys, Hart, Hardys, Ordexes, uh, and others. And the extensions, I think, are a monument to the initiative of, uh, of uh, Frank Spriggs and the support of uh, Sir Thomas Sopwith and Fred Segrist. Meantime, the, after we'd sold out, the, the gauntlet went into production and 300, no, 204 were delivered, including a squadron for the Danish army. The Gladiator, the last of Follen's GAC designs, was much more successful, 540 being made. It sold in 11 countries overseas, from Norway, Sweden and Finland in the north, to Portugal in the south and China in the east. Air Commodore Wheeler, in his notes, has described it, the Gladiator, as the most perfect aerobatic aeroplane of them all, admittedly with sufficient engine power to make it possible. The exploits of this machine in its carrier role, as a shipborne role, over Norway, and especially in Malta, are well known, faith, hope and charity being the cases which have caught the admiration of many. Before I move on to the uh, hurricane and meteors, I think I ought to pay a tribute to Folland, who left the GAC in 1937 for the British Marine Aircraft Company at Hamble, subsequently renamed Folland Aircraft. The control of the GAC by the Hawker Company was not very much to Folland's liking. That's understandable. He naturally thought that the newcomers, new owners, would give preference to Sydney Cam's designs. The Hearts and the Furies had put Cam on the top of the world, and the Hurricane was near at hand. Fallon came to us at last with an already established reputation as a first-class designer. The SE5, which he designed a greater part of it, at Farnborough, a most successful aircraft during the First World War, and the Nighthawks provided ample evidence of his ability, and that of his chief lieutenant, H. E. Preston. He gave the GAC an outstandingly good service, and in particular, during the two long spells of success, the Grebe Gamecock period and the Gauntlet Gladiator appeared being up. He had, as I have already told you, very strong preferences for the biplane. But when he was compelled to do adopt the monoplane for the 1929 trophy, nevertheless he and Preston produced a remarkably fine-looking machine. It's described in the Times Engineering Supplement and the technical press of the day as the most graceful machine that had yet been built. Apart from this excursion, however, he was instinctively rather very most conservative, but all in all he was one of the most successful designers of his period. In retrospect, it seems to me obvious that fortuitively, or nearly so, we did the right thing in joining forces with Hawkers and it became even more apparent when only a year later, a year or so later, 
Hawkers took over Armstrong's Siddeley. Avi Row, Armstrong Winter's Aircraft, Armstrong Siddeley Motors, High Duty Alloys and Air Service Training. The Combine was undoubtedly of greater service to the war effort, I think, than the individual units could have been. It lost the works, for example, were extended by the Hawker Siddeley people with their money before the war, fourfold, well before 1939, and this made possible the remarkable war output of hurricanes and typhoons by the Gloucester Company. It also made the, the substantial resources of Armstrong Winter's aircraft available for the Lancaster production. And I think it's very doubtful whether Whittle would have collaborated so well with Folland as he did with George Carter. In fact, we were perhaps wiser or luckier than we knew. Now we come to the jet period. In the 1938-39 period, the Air, there was an Air Ministry overseer at the JC, a squadron leader, Reynolds, who had been at Cranwell with Whittle and had maintained contact with him during the period when Whittle was developing his jet engine. In the early part of 1939, the Ministry, the Air Ministry, were beginning to take the Whittle engine seriously and were also considering what firm or which firm to encourage to design an aeroplane round it. Whilst this was going on, Reynolds brought Whittle down to Gloucester to talk to George Carter, our chief designer. And Carter showed him the drawings of a twin-boom fighter with a Napier Sabre engine in which Whittle was immediately interested because it coincided with some views of his own about aircraft design. Carter was most intrigued to hear about the jet engine because he had himself worked on something of the kind in the early 30s. However, Reynolds made it known to the Ministry that we GSC were interested and shortly after, Sir William Farron asked George Carter to go and see him with uh, Dr. Pye, who was then Director of Scientific Research. Carter asked if he could see a demonstration of the engine and a visit to Lutterworth was arranged. Comment, Carter's comments on this demonstration were on the following lines, and I can't do any better than quote them. He said, We went to the test bed and watched a run. The intensity of the noise was just about the limit. Some part of the engine glowed a full or a dull red colour. It seemed to me that I had never seen a more unpromising contraption to be asked to put inside an aeroplane. If, however, so much could be accomplished under the rudimentary conditions obtaining at Lutterworth it's not difficult to foresee immense possibilities for future development. That's George Carter's note at the time, his own words. Carter made his report, and as a result, he paid another visit to Lutterworth with Thomas Sopwith. And with Sopwith's support, and that of Frank Spriggs, the project was given a helpful, if somewhat cautious, blessing. Farron, Pye, and Tizard, that's a Henry Tizard, were more optimistic. They were more clear, most closely, more 
closely in touch with Frank Whittle and were impressed by his dedication and by the progress of the engine. But in my mind, there's no doubt that they were very much influenced by the evident willingness of Whittle and Carter to collaborate. Whittle wasn't everybody's money, you know, as a partner. Delightful man, but there were other, other sides to him. I saw a run on, run on the engine myself at Lutterworth, and I can't improve on George Carter's first impression. In those days, one didn't look at the jet engine on its test bed. In the safety of a good solid cabin and a specially reinforced glass window, we stood on the test bed, in the test bed, alongside the engine, and as near the exit as possible. There's a fearsome sight and the noise was shattering. Bearing in mind the time taken in the past to develop new design, new designs of piston engines, which we knew a lot, I had the impression the jet engine might, under the stress of war, become operational, say, at the best five or probably seven years. Well, that began the period when the Gloucester star shone most brightly. The first jet aeroplane, the E-28-39, began its design life in August 1939, but the final decision as to its shape was not authorized till February uh, 1940. It was ready for taxiing trials in April 1941, and it took to the air on the 15th of May 1941 at 7.15 p.m. at Cranwell. Very meticulous about the time, because it's an important date, as you can well understand. As a design job, it always seemed to be a very good performance with the stress of war and modification work and a very, well, relatively small design staff. It was a momentous, obviously a momentous occasion for Jerry Sayre, the pilot, the aeronautical world in general. For my part, it brought an, to an abrupt halt the friendly witticisms from my fellow members of the SPAC. From being funny about it, they all wanted to come down overnight and have a look. The aircraft was uncannily free from the teething troubles that one would expect from such a new departure. <clears throat> it was, of course, handled by a masterly pilot, Jerry Sale, who nursed it with great care and skill. But nevertheless, it is a triumph, George Carter and Frank Whittle. After the tragic death of Sale, Michael Daunt and John Grierson took it over, and after two years of experimental flying, it was handed over to Farnborough in 1943. In the April of 1943, Michael Daunt demonstrated before an impressive gathering of air staff officers and Mr. Winston Churchill, who was so startled by the speed, somewhere near 400 miles an hour, he spilled his drink, that characteristically demanded why squadrons of these fighters were not there and then available. By the end of 1939, the progress of the Whittle engine was such that we started work on a new jet, capable of carrying all the equipment and the fuel necessary for an operational single-seater fighter. A definite proposal was put to the Air Ministry in, 19, in March 1940, and this is the birth of the meteor. 
is a twin-engine type because it seemed unlikely that a single engine could, could be developed with sufficient power for some time to come. <clears throat> the reasons for the engine nacelles being outboard were partly aerodynamic, partly structural, but mainly because future engines, which would probably be either a greater diameter, diameter or greater length, or both, could be housed with far less modification to the structure as a whole than would be the case if the engines were either built into the fuselage or close in like the clover leaf design. This of course is a simplification since there are many other factors which influence the design. Close on the heels of the successful flight, the E2839, there was a tremendous upsurge of ideas and rapid development of both engines and aircraft. And that became really bewildering until it settled down following the acceptance of the actual flow engine some time later. At very short intervals we investigate the Whittle variants with reverse flow combustion, the BTH and the ASX, the Halford single-sided impellers, the Rolls-Royce straight-through developments, the Metrovic axial, the Rolls-Royce AJ65 axial. In the space of ten months, we built and flew seven Meteor prototypes, each with engines differing in basic design or of modified versions. Despite the fact that it was designed to take Whittle Rover and Rolls-Royce jets, the first Meteor to fly was powered by our de Havilland Halford Goblin jet, in March 1943. An interesting fact, since Halford started on jets some time later than Whittle, but if Whittle had had the same untrammeled resources as Halford, there would have been a very different story, no doubt. The race was on, with the massive Rolls-Royce team rapidly making up time in lost transfer of Whittle's engines from Lutterworth to Rover, and thence to Rolls-Royce. However, the upshot was the adoption of the Meteor by the RAF, and in due course 4,000 were built with Rolls-Royce jet engines for the UK and the overseas market. The Vampire, with the Halford Goblin jets, also went into production, mostly for overseas consumption, and these two jet aircraft made a handsome contribution to UK exports over a period of 10 years. Consistently good work of the GAC team of pilots under Michael Daunt and the cooperation from Rolls-Royce were cardinal factors in the successful development of the Meteor and in the sales promotion in the overseas market. Eleven marks of Meteors were designed and built around the Rolls-Royce Welland jets, weighing 850 pounds and giving a thrust of 1,750 pounds, and the Derwent jets, which started with 920 pounds weight and 2,000 pounds thrust and finished with a Derbent 5, with 4,000 pound thrust, all with centrifugal compressors. Subsequent marks of Meteors number 11, 12 and 13, modified by Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft Company, made their own headway in the specialised night fighter category. Alongside the hectic production efforts on the Hurricane and Typhoons, GAC took on the Albemarle's designed by Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft, a twin-engine bomber constructed of steel tube and wood as an insurance against the failure to, of supplies of aluminium through enemy action in the Atlantic. 
After an intensive drive in 1939 and early 1940, the large team of subcontractors originally enlisted on the production of these aircraft was rapidly thinned out by the more insistent demands for Lancasters and Mosquitoes, and production of the Albemarle proceeded therefrom under steadily increasing difficulties. However, 600 were produced, of which a number were flown to Russia but most of them were used for glider-towing purposes later in the war, especially during the landings in Sicily. Although I have given so much space to the jet aircraft, by the far the greatest efforts of the GAC during the war was on hurricanes and typhoons, and the main production effect under McKenna and R.V. Atkinson of the GAC during the war was most impressive. No less than 2,750 hurricanes were made, and also 700 typhoons, peak production being four hurricanes every hour, plus a vast quantity of spares during the critical period of the Battle of Britain. Hawkers had to offload a considerable number of detailed design problems to the GAC from time to time, a particularly troublesome one being the oil cooling of the Sabre engines in the Typhoons, which did a marvellous job in supporting the D-Day landings operation. For my part, when the Air Ministry moved out to Harrogate in 1939, I took a house in Cheltenham, which was a good centre for getting to Brockworth, Wolverhampton, Bridgewater and Coventry, and in between times I was roped in by Lord Beaverbrook, to take charge of the light alloy control. I found his lordship a remarkable opportunist with an arrestable flair for concentrating all available forces into a narrow field, like that of interceptor fighter, for example, which was of such paramount importance in the Battle of Britain. In other areas of war production he was not quite so successful, and after a hectic ten months I was quite ready to get back to some steady and more rewarding work elsewhere. So far as the war period was concerned, the Meteor was not developed as quickly as it might have been. Not only were there many engine changes to which I have already referred, but there was a frustrating period of hesitation lasting several months on the part of the Air Ministry. A few aircraft, however, found their way into squadron number 616 and were used for the interception of the V-1 flying bombs in 1944. In one particular and notable case, in August 1944, flying off Steen caught up with his V-1, but his cannons failed him. He flew alongside, got his wings tips under that of the V-1, and simply tipped it over into a dive in the open country. The wingtip is now in the possession of Gloucester Technical Sales Limited at Hucklecutt. A few months earlier, the Air Ministry arranged an exchange whereby we sent a meteor to Muroc in the United States, who sent us a Bell Aerocomet over here. The comparison was interesting because the Aerocomet and its engines tucked in at the side of the fuselage under the wing roots. These engines were a derivative from the Whittle sample engines sent by our government to the United States earlier in the war. No comparative performance figures were available, but some of our senior design staff recorded their view that the Aerocomet layout would prove the better for future development. In 1945, Meteors took the world highest speed record. Group Captain Wilson reached 606 miles per hour and Eric Greenwood 604 miles per hour. A year later, the increased engine thrust, Group Captain Donaldson reached 616 miles an hour and Squadron Leader Waterton 608 miles an hour. 
After McKenna left under P.G. Crabb as managing director, R.V. Atkinson and W. Downing in charge of production, the Meteors continued in full production right through to 1954, a run of 11 years. During this time, there was a substantial export under Eric Greenwood and Ron Harker of Rolls-Royce. Moreover, Fokkers in Holland made 300 for the Dutch and Belgian governments. A two-seater night fighter variant was made by Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft and continued in production there after the Gloucester production came to an end. After the Meteor in various forms continued and imposed a heavy load on the design office, GAC embarked on a new single-engine aircraft known as the E-144. It was powered by a Rolls-Royce Neen engine, still with a centrifugal compressor. This type, however, was dropped because it did not show sufficient advantage over the Meteor. A little later, another new type, the Javelin, under Richard Walker as chief designer, was started to the Air Ministry specification F-448. It was a massive all-weather heavy fighter with two sapphire axle flow jets, each giving 7,200 pounds thrust at the outset, and later 8,300 pounds. It was much larger and much more sophisticated than anything the company had produced up to that time, and it contained a mass of equipment. The development period was unnecessarily protracted by an unfortunate decision by the Air Ministry to cut down the original four prototypes to two. It was a short-sighted decision bearing in mind the fact that the airplane had an untried type of wing, the Delta Confederation, being new to this country. It had a cocked-up tail unit. It had a new axial flow engines. It was designed to carry a galaxy of equipment to conform with the new conception of the weapon system. The new production model was flown on the 26th of November 1951 by squadron leader Waterton within three years of the instruction to proceed. During the course of development, flying in June 1952, the elevators came adrift, flutter, but Waterton, by a really skilled and courageous bit of piloting, made a forced landing in Boscombe Down and salvaged the elevator vibration record. For this exploit, Waterton got a well-deserved George Medal. After Waterton left, development flying was continued by Wing Commander R.F. Martin, who gave the company outstanding service on the aircraft for some years. The GAC owned him a great deal, particularly in establishing a spinning recovery over a period of 200 flights. Courage and skill of a very high order indeed. The Javelins went into production on an extensive scale during the early 1950s, and we made 450 of them, but it soon became apparent that the subsonic fighter was already obsolete. Both the Russians and the USA were well ahead with transonic and supersonic types. The Ministry of Supply therefore instructed Gloucester Company to put up a major design and development effort into a new type known as the Thin Wing Javelin, a title which in general means what it says, since it had a wing with a high chord thickness ratio to facilitate supersonic speeds. Its other principal characteristic was the installation of a pair of powerful Bristol Olympus engines. Design work proceeded at a fast pace and components were nearing completion, ready for prototype assembly when cancellation was imposed. The new thinking, which gave rise to the disturbing white papers of 1957 and 1958, had begun to make its impact, and the thin-wing javelin was one of the first heads to fall.
Salvation was believed to lie in the guided missiles rather than fighters. The new thinking seems to have lost its way more than once since then, despite the emergence of the Stoll and VTOL developments. After the war, the new number two factory, the property of the Air Ministry, which had been engaged on Arbor Miles, was turned over to the manufacture of aluminium houses, and Hawksley, which had started an offshoot of Gloucester's company, made well over 30,000 of these houses, and moreover supplied many hundreds of to Australia, together with a considerable number of schools, hospitals, and similar buildings. The average production over three years was one completed house every 12 minutes of working time. Subsequently, the number two works was successfully employed on the production of Armstrong Sidley's Sapphire Jet engines. When this work came to an end, the works were sold by the Air Ministry to British Nylon Spinners, now ICI Fibres Limited. The period from 1956 onwards was mostly unsettled and unsettling. The cost of military aircraft was growing fast, a result of greatly increased complexity. The industry was blamed for high costs and low output, ignoring the disastrous effects of dilatory decisions by the politicians, who had obviously lost their way in the maze of contradictory thinking on the part of their advisers. Should they follow the chief scientists, or the air marshal, or Richard Worcester, or the USA Pentagon? They reminded one so much of the centipede who came to grief because it could not decide which leg to move first. On the other hand, the Americans showed no hesitation and made more and more aircraft, including nearly a thousand starfighters in Germany, Holland, Belgium and Italy. By 1958, however, the government came to one conclusion, namely that the country's economy could not stand the mounting costs a decision largely influenced by Mr. Macmillan when he succeeded Mr. Anthony Eden. The Hawker Sidley Group was therefore faced with the necessity of closing down some of its works. After much deliberation, the decision was made to close first any works which had no new types to put into production, and then the thin-wing javelin was cancelled. The GAC fell into that category. That cancellation was therefore fatal not merely for the aircraft, but for the company itself. It was a question of timing, a word which so often means the same thing as luck. There is still a chance that Gloucester Day may have a new lease of life in Gloucester Saro. Its vending division is rapidly climbing out of the red, and the other, no doubt, will follow suit. The excursion of GAC via Hawksley into aluminium housing and building was highly successful, and another successor, Gloucester Technical Services, is flourishing. Finally, may I gratefully acknowledge the help I have had from George Carter, Dick Walker, John Cuss, Derek James, John Grierson and many others. Thank you.